Readers and writers, painters and seekers, in trousers or tiaras, non-conformers and non-believers, gender X and gender equals. Welcome to Eat the Storms, the poetry podcast. And today on the 25th of February 2023, we are celebrating the launch of the Storms issue 2. My name is Damien B. Donnelly. I get to be your host and producer for this podcast. And also, I have the honour of being the editor-in-chief of The Storms, our new printed companion journal of poetry, prose and visual arts. And all this week, we have been celebrating the launch of its second issue. On this episode, coming to you on most podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Anchor, Google, Breaker, Podbean, Player FM, Overcast, Pocketcast, Castbox, Podcast Addicts and iTunes, we will be turning it into an audio companion to the journal, where we have 54 of our 81 international contributors who will share their poetry and prose, and that includes my sub-editor for this issue, the sensational Eileen Dupuyer, who made this an unforgettable adventure and I think together, along with our contributors of poetry, prose and visual arts, we've achieved a fantastic result. In the journal itself, that adventure begins right on the front cover with artwork from our featured visual artist Jane Rainey from Belfast in Northern Ireland, whose canvases perfectly fit with this issue with paintings erupting like maps, lava flows of meanders through miles and memory, cloud and confusion, mystery and the mountain. For this issue, we had no theme, but while we were reading the submission, some evolved naturally, and the most notable one was movement. The pandemic has ended, and here we are, back on the road, in cars, on trains, taking flight, taking stock of what we missed, and noting what we left behind. In this new landscape, unsettled perhaps by our returning footsteps, these contributions contemplate not only our own social behaviour, but our surrounding ecology, examining the fallow fields that once contained our whole world and its furry animals who for a time were maybe a little more content without us. Along the way, we have moments of comfort and confusion, some of those new and some memories still to fade. But what also appeared was a return to fairy tales, to myth and magic, perhaps the mystery we needed to step back out into the world, having been locked down for so long. On a return to the route, we've noted it was not only humanity that was shaken, brought to the edge of extinction, but our entire planet too. And yet, somehow, we've managed to retain a little light, as you'll hear later on from our featured prose writer Rona Green, who writes, Something shines as something dims, and hope echoes inside the song of grace. Now let's get on with the show and welcome our first guests. Today we have no long introductions, but you can head on over to www.eatthestorms.com later on and find a list of our contributors and there you'll find their bios and their social media handles. And also you can buy a copy of The Storms Issue 2 if you don't have one already. And if you are listening to this episode on the day that it goes out, Saturday the 25th of February, then it's squeeze in a read day. So what better squeeze on this new storm? Now, for our first lineup today, we have Sasha Hutchinson, followed by Sarah Wallace, Jack B. Bedell, Marguerite Doyle, Ross Thompson, Nathaniel O'Reilly, Eileen Dupuyer, Sean Kelly, Joyce Bingham and Darren Donahue.
Hello, my name is Sasha Hutchinson, and my poem, Look Stranger. Look stranger, on this edge before you, space endless, the tide shifting out. Stand here as the sun drops, and three islands slip off the horizon. Hear the piped call of oyster catcher, another redless bird. Try not to think. Nature leaves earth each species one by one. Far away, specks of ships grow as they approach. Follow me. Heel off your shoes. Ball up your socks. Walk slowly over smooth, round stones. Let this moment hold memory. Watch as a gull tilts on its side. Sun gone, smell deep the sea. Now wade with me, stranger, out into the swaying wash. How cold the empty sky. I Build a Small Boat, a poem by Sarah Wallace. I watch the wood unravel under a yellow storm sky. Birdsong falls silent, the incessant woodpecker stopped in his bowl. Most birds take cover, only the insects bustle on, message their brethren in a series of clicks, crickets, cicada, I'm not sure which. I bide my time, listen to moss and lichen, carry measures, take cover, and spying larch make my plan, drawing strength from star-struck and storm-dazed trees, assemble plain boards, I will build a small boat and escape my life, lay keel, imagine hall and draught, her ribcage painted sunny side up, yoke yellow, the mast proud. Look to windward, see the mainsail fill and billow with the sound of adventure. Hi, I'm Martin Kennedy Yates, and my poem is entitled Wheat Ear. It features on page six of issue two of the Storms magazine. And if you have a copy of the magazine, do have a look at the poem on page six. It forms a, a rather unusual uh, abstract shape on the page, which is designed to uh, suggest the energy that the poem aims to capture. Three things, really. The energy, of course, of the, the little bird, the wheat ear. Uh, the energy of the, the storm and the wind and the, the waves lashing the coast, and then my own energy, which hopefully connects with both of those things in the poem. Wheatier. From first sight, I'm taken by this blur of blush on dry stone wall. Mascara streak of eyeliner flutters into white flight, ignites an idea, flares up, quickened into small fire and falls as fast, doused and doubted by wet air. 
Six times it rises, six times it dips, dives, sinks, swims, flits across this little plot of jaded gold, faded green. I, too, think, light-footed, spring-lifted, skip across this soft turf, lips and limbs blessed by this savour of salt surf spray. Both of us buoyed by breath of Atlantic drift, caught on the hint and shift of warmer air and climbs. Here bird and mind climb softer sky, sing incessant, a light afresh in day's first sunlight, become a smudge of rust, pinch of pinkish pollen dust on pre-Cambrian grey of earth crust. Again this streak of stripe from eye to edge of wing to fledge of tail is all a twitch, my thought and it, all electric, all alert to short circuit. Flick of switch, flash of light in grey weather, white feather, free to fly, spinnaker. Set free to sail this steely sea, gash glare its rush of rusty blood against this ruggedness of ancient rock, to strike ourselves on this rough galvanism of corrugated sky, to flash flare into life our own phosphorescent eye. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Bedell, and this is my poem, Cancer Diary, Post-Treatment. One of the pretty stories I tell myself these days is how as soon as I feel better, I'll set up the tent at water's edge, build a decent fire, and sit on the bank with my feet hanging in the lake. Nothing to do but listen to the breeze push leaves around in the woods. My favorite part of it all is how real I know the lake and breeze are how the firewood's already chopped in the shed and stacked to load into the truck, how easily the tent would unfold itself, and feel good or not, how ready the world is to go. Hello, my name is Marguerite Doyle, and my poem is called Kites. The council have been out all winter on the coast, laying new cycle lanes, painting walls, planting pots full of geraniums. The people walk up and down between lines that separate them from bikes and cars. I remember when they all used to jumble in together among the wildflowers. We passed them by, watching kites on Bull Island catch the wind and soar, throwing kaleidoscopes like unholy. Hi there, my name is Ross Thompson. I'm a writer from Bangor, County Down. Thanks to Eat the Storms for featuring my poem, Train Song. Train Song. How delightfully strange to be moving while stationary. Propelling this effortlessly causes us to forget the innovation it takes to attach rotating blades to carriages and transport them through towns and cities. Panels 
exploding with mirror ball light when we emerge from tunnels, jitterbugging like dust specks in a static projector beam. The frames of the old world scrolling past as we shuttle towards our terminus, where the rush of commuters, the shriek of sliding doors, and the hot funk of smog are a stark reminder, a slap in the face, of the joy of travelling from one place to another, the limbo, the purgatory, the sweet realm of possibility. My name is Nathaniel O'Reilly, and my poem is called Passage. Driving from Dublin to Galway, down back roads between hedgerows, stone walls and fields, I am at peace in solitude. Driving through Kerry, from Cahasavine to Dingle, with my daughter, we sing the Lumineers, Ophelia, Cleopatra, and Angela. Driving onto the beach at Inch, we scan the horizon for surfable waves, park and swim in the frigid flat Atlantic. Driving past the flaggy shore, I recall Heaney's line, you are neither here nor there. Driving across the sand to Omi Island at low tide, we prepare to meet poets for a secret reading beside the water. Lying on longboards at La Hinch, tasting summer salt, we wait for the seventh wave. After driving through Clare, Limerick and Kerry to Cork, we explore Blarney Castle's grounds, lie on our backs high above the earth, kiss the stone, receive the gift. Driving from Port Rush, past Dunluce Castle, to the Giant's Causeway, we stop to swim at White Park Bay after coffee at the Bothy while cows relax on the beach. Run to the Carrick Areed rope bridge, stroll through the dark hedges at twilight, gazing over luminous fields bordered by trees, warm up with bushmills. This is Eileen Dupuyer in times of lesser light. And because you were old enough to choose, I brought you to the hardware shop, into the illuminated cave at the far back reaches where light fittings dripped like stalactites from the dropped ceiling and succulent wall lights reached upwards from every plane of the mock room walls. You walked, small-footed, into the hum of watts, past brass-caged bulkheads and candelabras, under glass orbs and brushed chrome halos, exposed Edison screw-cap pendants. Stopping at last beneath an oversized globe made of wire and white rice paper, longer in diameter than you in height, a moon in a galaxy of suns.
Hello, my name is Sean Kelly, and my poem is called The Trials of Snow White. The Trials of Snow White I'm at the mercy of this sunset, sitting at open patio doors while my boys play on the trampoline, tossing a stuffed monkey back and forth between them. Being a father, I'm supposed to conduct the breezes, be midwife to reins of adoration. Well, I'm at the stage where hooded faces lunge at me in dreams. Better they take what lessons they can from, say, Snow White, drying her hair on the beach, true story, looking up to see the queen standing on battlements, left arm in the air, while leaves fell from trees and the grey-hearted sea laid back in sleep. Look, the only real point I'm trying to make here is that things change for no reason. In the end, Snow White had her stepmother's heart preserved in a glass jar. At idle times, she stood with it at the magic mirror, daring him to speak. It's almost dark. Fir trees, blind, barely moving, give the same message tonight as every other. There is no God but God. My sons are sitting on the trampoline, taking turns in a burping contest. Soon they'll be sleeping side by side. Those grey hooded figures will gather round their bed, tin cups in hand. Hello, my name is Joyce Bingham and my story is called Troll Maiden. At school she was a kid who was never invited to parties, shunned by all but me. Opal wore hand-me-down clothes, her face speckled with grime, smelling of earth and river. She came to my home strumming her guitar, singing her songs, enchanting my family. She became part of us, a sea of redheads and her one river-dark head of green and blue. Her skin tones milky and freckled, hers pale and translucent. One day Opal took me back to her home, deep within the abutment of the stone bridge on the edge of town. I was sixteen and gangly, she was elfin and beautiful, eyes thick with coal and lips dark bruise. As she grew, her tattoos developed with each menstrual cycle, growing and twining around her limbs, spirals of water, blue and green, fish swam on her stomach, a keystone on her back, chiselled and precise. We sat in the room under the arch, cool and dark, behind a curtain of waterweed. It smelled of moss and musky river mud. We kissed and promised each other the woods, the river, the stone. I'm not what I seem, Opal said. You have always known. Like my father, I became a woodsman, looking after the forest. I grew tattoos of leaves, bark and roots between my toes. We lived in our stone home within the bridge, and she grew big with our daughter. I became a haven for Opal's tattoo fish. They couldn't sleep for the double heartbeat. I did not return the fish when our daughter Topaz was born. She is not what she seems, Opal said. You have always known. We taught Topaz to love the woods as well as stones. She traced her tattoos with her tiny fingers and laughed as the ancients sang to her. When the storm came, the torrent making the water levels rise, ripping through trees, pulling limbs apart, stripping leaves made my heart beat faster. We watched from the hill above the bridge as the thick trunks of wood were hurled into the arches, the abutments seared with grooves and chips. 
Beside me opal sang, her words an incantation to save her bridge, while her tattoos danced and convulsed. The fish on my stomach swam in agitated circles, churning the leaves on my skin and scratching my bark. The bridge sat steadfast above the water, strong and firm. Water sprayed over the parapet, soaking the stone, filling the road with water. Opal studied each groove and grain of tooled stone. She moved her fingers in the air, jabbing and pointing, caressing and soothing. Still the rain fell, the icy drops like knives showing no mercy against our skin. She turned to me and howled with anguish. The stone lions guarding the parapet snarled with her in fury. She called out words in a tongue I did not understand, but its familiar rhythm resonated deep within my bones. Pitching her hand on my heart, she told me to stay on this hill, to save our daughter. She will need your strength. I pulled her to me. She kissed my fingers, my lips, the rain mingling with her tears. I am not what I seem, Opal said. You have always known. She slipped past police cars, road closed barriers and flashing blue lights. I couldn't move. She had wished my stillness, my compliance and her sacrifice. Her daughter huddled beneath my coat. Topaz whispered her mother's words, but she was too little to strengthen Opal's power. The police guarding the bridge with their futile plastic tape flapping in the wind looked through her, seeing only the water in their own fear. Her blue and green hair billowing around her, she called to the heavens, but the rain and the wind were incent on their destruction. Kneeling on the bridge, she laid her hands on her stones. I could feel her song vibrate through the foundations, reaching even my feet on the high ground. A splash, minute and delicate, in the midst of the turmoil. A fracture point. She looked back at me and I knew a stone had fallen. In the half-light of the storm, her power blazed out of her belly. She embraced the arch, her graceful arms melding into the structure. The keystone tattoo across her back became one with the bridge. I am the troll maiden, Opal whispered. You have always known. Hello, my name is Darren Dinahu. I'm a poet based in Goresbridge, County Kilkenny. My debut poetry collection titled Secret Poets is published by Tourist Press. The poem I'd like to read is titled Chasing the Dragon, and I'm delighted to see it published in the Storms Journal issue two. So once again, this poem is titled Chasing the Dragon. It appears at my back door and knocks three times. I rise from my bed and unarmed, I face the dragon. We wrestle in the moonlight, the dragon fighting dirty, spitting, clawing, biting. It spews filth, swearing to devour the world. Only when I catch its tail and threaten to snap it, will the dragon concede, vanishing faster than a political promise. Exhausted, bleeding, bruised, I return inside and firmly shut the door. However, if I refuse the dragon's challenge or succumb under its assault, the dragon will fly straight through my daughter's bedroom window, 
circle her walls like flashing strips of LED lights and come to rest in her ear. It will curl its tail around her malus and sink its claws into her incudospedial joint. The dragon is impossible to remove. And oh, the things it whispers. The things it whispers. Wow, what an opening to this second issue. It has truly been an honour to read everybody's work. For issue two, we had almost 2,000 submissions, which made this selection process heartbreaking at times. And most of the time, a no was merely down to a matter of space. Only 116 pages to be able to fill. So thank you to every single person who submitted. For all those we had to say no to, I hope you will consider submitting to our next issue. And to those who were selected, huge congratulations and thank you so much for trusting us with your work. It is truly an honour. Now, this next section features Sharon Black, S.C. Flynn, Stuart Carswell, Fiona Hanley, Elizabeth Gibson, Susan Eldsley, Marion Ashton, Marie Marchand and Gabriel Rosenstock. And it opens with Kelly Lage. My name is Kelly Lage. This is my poem, Ginger. At birth, I petition God to send me back, take another stab at my becoming, bear me an older sister first. My bruising wasn't drawn out because I have an ant made of Kansas winds, bluegrass anthems, and larks. Life well nigh bursts from my skull when we coin cliffhangers, raiding riverbeds for haunted lives. At 16, she doesn't tell my parents I embody riots. I don't tell her her favorite whiskey made teenage nights sour. She is my apartment on days I bite my nails to their beds. I saunter in her lobby when I need to remember how to feel my arms. At 23, she lets me in on being an adult and that sometimes you just need to curse until your cheeks blister. We both know we'd be locked up in a psych ward if it were the 1950s. So we remember women with minds like ours and toast to blood. Hello, my name is Sharon Black and this is my poem, Victoria after a film by Sebastian Shipper. Every day, the same routine, same uniform, same espresso machine, customers, empty chat and dragging hands. No wonder a girl would throw it up to run with criminals she's never met. We'll drive them to a heist. We'll stick around even when the deal turns foul until the taps run blood instead of steam. No wonder she will risk it all for boys she barely knows in a language she doesn't understand. We'll bow to kiss the last boy's head as he lies dying. Until every day the same routine. A gun and balaclava as normal as a flower in cappuccino froth. Hello, my name is S.C. Flynn, and my poem is called The Luxury of Colour. Grand Canal Dock, Dublin. 
This gasworks chimney is a survivor, the last standing stone of its circle. The others have eroded over time, but they once used to cover this landscape. That must have been a world of primary shades, lacking the luxury of colour, a collage clipped from old newspapers. When those pipes of the gigantic organ blasted out their gritty music, millions of carbon crows flapping in flocks, storm clouds that perched on buildings and trees before taking flight as still more arrived, floating lower and lower in waves before settling everywhere to roost. Hello, my name is Stuart Carswell, and this poem is called Love Song of the Badger. When I come to you, it's because it smells safe. No predators, just us, entering at dusk. But doesn't my fur look well-groomed tonight? And in this domain of darkness, we are emperors of the field. You can slaughter as many earthworms and beetles as you like, Drag their bodies out of mud and feed them to me on platters of moonlight. My insatiable desire, your insatiable lust for fur and territory. Our land, demarked with spray and scat, from the old oak stump by the wire fence, down to the far end of the meadow and across to the bank beneath the hedgerow where my claws scratch away the soil and tunnel the hollow home of where my cubs were born, where I was born, in this dark, in this earth. Hi, my name is Fiona Hanley and the title of my poem is The Empty Field Where the Horse Had Stood. Would you have stopped at the gate a little longer, learned to look at her the way she looked at you with the whole of her pinto body? Might your nostrils have billowed and flared, eager to stir the air, taste a waft of her drift, your head lifted high, lips peeled wide to suck the thick musk? Or your eyes, could they have held the same calm clarity that didn't want to name, not rust, not copper, not carrot, not earth and clay, even the patches of white, not white only, nor cream, nor linen? And might your skin have slightly trembled? Might your hair have shook the light as your head nodded, then nodded? She was there, and then she wasn't, like the clouds, like the rain, and you know it will happen like that. One day, the next day you think will come, won't, and it will be done then, the looking or the not looking, no more longing to be elsewhere. The field will remain, with a horse, and then without a horse, full rushes, cowslip, mud and the tree that leans with the wind. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Gibson and this is my poem called The Squirrel and Fainting. I think the corpses of a bigger animal 
and try to work out which, in the split second before seeing and knowing. It is like how the moments before fainting or after dreaming last much longer inside us than they do outside, and are looser as to what can exist. I picture giant rat, tiny badger, or a creature I somehow never encountered. But one step, then one more, and there it is, a grey squirrel. Still perfect, intact, tail and body equally big and lush. Tiny face fixed forever on the next challenge. Car outrun. Is there a fence to scale, a bird feeder to giggle, a cat to dodge? You can only live this way. Otherwise, you would just stop. Sit in your tree, never know. I think of burial, the words we plant and repot coming to mind. The squirrel is a spring bulb, fossil fuel, a mass of minerals and starry matter. It will give as it sleeps and the earth will drink. Later on I faint, thinking about the blood test I'm expected to book, about invasion, about a me coming to exist outside of me in the red cube. Flat on the floor, I stare at a ceiling unit like a square frog, stopped in time, mouth gaping. I'm gently told... Why get so worried about something you haven't booked yet? I don't know how to live other than to keep moving. When I stay still, I get so scared of dying. I'm already forgetting the squirrel. Somebody should remember. This is Susan Elsley, reading my short story, Birdwatching. Biff and Dan sat on the edge of the cliff, watching the birds dip and soar like a moving veil. They'd heard the sound before they reached the expanse of the sea, high-pitched exchanges of screeches and squawks that never flagged. The women in the bed and breakfast told them they should visit before they left. Go, if you've never seen a seabird colony, she said, as she brought coffee to the table. She smiled at Viv, who wondered if the woman had heard Dan shouting when she spilled his glass of whiskey in the bedroom last night. They'd parked the car two miles away and walked along a pebbled path that became a stretch of bog and then mounds of tussocky heather. Dan wasn't keen. Viv, no kidding, I don't understand why you wanted to come. I've had enough for one weekend. He strode ahead and she only caught up when he stumbled crossing a stream and got his boots covered in peaty mud. She touched his arm, but he pushed her hand away. When they reached the cliff, Viv stared at the birds circling a sea stack spotted with white guano. She wanted to say, watch, the birds never collide, it's miraculous. But Dan was staring at his phone tapping the screen with his forefinger like the birds pecking at their nests. No damn signal, he said. His hair had flopped over his eyes, making him something more than he ever was when she woke beside him in the morning. She stared at him 
until she knew he wasn't going to look at her and she turned back to the cliff. She wasn't like these birds. Viv couldn't relax when she was around other people. Soon after she met Dan, he'd taken her to his favourite bar. She didn't know what to say, even when his friends asked her simple questions about what she did and how had she met Dan. When she said that she worked in a museum, one woman said, well, that makes a change, and raised her eyebrows at Dan. Afterwards, he told Viv that she was rubbish at being in a crowd. Sorry, she said. It will be easier next time now I've met your friends. An untruth that they had never tested. Dan didn't invite her again, and she gave up pretending that she minded. She moved closer to the edge. Below were tufts of pink thrift growing in crevices. Dan didn't tell her to move away or to stop staring so intently at the ink-black water spotted with kitty wicks and shags. He let her stand there, swaying, and the longer she stood, the more she felt the breeze push her slightly, as if it was a gentle hand on her back. It's time to go, Viv. Dan said, in the insistent way she'd got used to. She'd liked it at first. Being together had given her a structure in the months after her mother died. She'd met him in the park on one of her solitary runs when she tripped over a tree root, and he helped her to her feet and brushed leaves from her back with a care that was unexpected. A few weeks later, he had to move out of his place. And she said, let's give it a go. Her confidence came from relief. When she walked into her flat after work, he waved from the kitchen where he was chopping vegetables for one of his curries. She would pull her coat off and curl up on the sofa. And he would bring her a mug of tea and kiss the top of her head. Relax, Viv girl, I'll sort you out, he'd say. Everything had changed in the last month when he'd stopped cooking and arrived home most nights after a couple of pints in the bar. His voice had a hectoring tone when he asked if she'd been lying on the sofa all night. She couldn't answer him because most evenings she had, giving in to an inertia that only eased when she was reading what she'd picked up in the charity shop. Books were stacked like a ramshackle tower on the floor. Last week, he'd kicked the pile over. Sorry, accident, he mumbled, but it could have been the beginning of an argument if she'd said, no, it wasn't. Since then, they'd been careful with each other until she'd spilled whiskey in the bed and breakfast and Dan had yelled. She'd mopped the rug with her T-shirt while he had poured himself a larger second glass. She'd slept clinging to the edge of the bed while he snored next to her. The wind had picked up. Clouds were scudding towards them from the horizon and she felt spits of rain on her face. No, she said. I want to stay. Come on, Viv. If we head off now, I'll get back in time to catch the others in the bar. I've had my fill of bogs and seabirds. This time he took her hand 
lifting her fingers one by one and pressing them against his palm. Our hand fasting, he'd said, the first time after they'd slept together. Now it felt like a coiled grasp. She wriggled her fingers and he held them tighter. No, I'm staying, she said. I want to watch. The birds are learning to fly. She leaned forward and his hand loosened. On a ledge, a bird prodded its chick towards the edge with its beak. Fair enough. I'm off, he said. He let go of her hand and she flexed her fingers, one at a time. I'll catch up with you, she said. Only if you hurry. Dan slurred his words so she almost didn't catch them. He held up the car keys. Last chance, Viv. She watched him walk away. She would have liked to shout out to him that she'd decided to take more care of herself, but he didn't look back as he headed towards the path. At the stream, he hesitated, as if unsure whether to jump or balance on the rock in the middle of the water. He half slipped and had to scramble onto the heather before he jogged on. She knew that if he drove off, she would have to find her own way home, and by the time she got there, he wouldn't be. Half an hour to get to the car, three hours to drive to the city, one hour to pack his clothes, trainers and dumbbells. Ten minutes to take what he wanted, like the coffee machine with its ridiculous stainless steel levers that he cleaned every week because he said she left smudges. He might leave a scribbled note on the table like last time, saying that he would come back if she was up for an honest discussion, the kind where he talked and she felt herself shrinking into the sofa until the wooden frame dug into her body. She watched him until he had disappeared. She stretched her arms above her head. She wouldn't go home today. Instead, she would try and get a lift to the bed and breakfast where the woman had said, come back any time, and pressed Viv's hand as if she knew she might return. Viv looked over the cliff and down to the ledge. The chick wasn't there anymore. The nest of sticks, grass and feathers was ruffled as if the young bird had left in a hurry. She sat down and leaned forward, holding on to nothing but the air thick with the cacophony of the colony. Down where the water swirled around the rocks, birds floated and spread their mottled, not quite full wings before letting them rest against their bodies and trying again. She stretched out her legs. Her mobile rang and she let the voicemail click in. She put her backpack behind her head. She would watch the birds for a while before she headed back to the road. It didn't matter if it rained. Hello, my name is Marion Ashton and my poem is called Houston Freeway's White-Tailed Deer. Houston Freeway's White-Tailed Deer 
Please, not this, right here, right now, daubed by strokes of a thousand lights, flashing pinks, greens, blues from billboards, lines of street lights, the glare of my headlights, beaming on the smooth flanked carcass of a full-grown stag, slumped in the back of this red pickup truck. Those silver-fingered, intricate wide antlers, mirror-imaged, a blood-stained face, the jackknifed neck, wide, blind eyes, staring, staring, straight at me. Hi, my name's Marie Marchand. I live in Ellensburg, Washington, and this is my poem, Excavation. I haven't seen this many ochre and black earth movers since my son was three and obsessed with playing in the sandbox. Here they are, tearing up the field where I walked every day of the pandemic, all four seasons, twice. Now there is no soft path to the northernmost road that runs adjacent to the cattle in the shadow of Mount Stewart. If I want to read my poems to that mellow herd again, I'll need to crisscross a matrix of city sidewalks to get there. How deeply does the land bury the stories it hears? How far down will the workers find my pandemic grief? I didn't get a chance to tell the field a happy ending so it could plant my resilience in time for spring. The Marivorsu Garut It hangs a good ashing And that last poem there, of course, by Gabriel Rosenstock was Osgelger, or in Irish. And it's truly an honour to feature a poem in the native language of my home country here in issue two of the journal. Now, following on from Gabriel, we will be joined by Catherine Redford, Stuart Rawlinson, Hilary Otto, Eileen Depoer, Sue Burge, Leslie Kerwin, Linda McKenna, Cloda Healy, Eileen Carney-Hume, Maeve Keane, Matt Gilbert and Martina Dalton. And this section will be started off by R.J. Burnock. Hi, I'm R.J. Burnock, and this is my poem, When the Logging is Done. The scarred face of the battlefield, laying still as if mauled by a rabid, frothing dog, crisscrossed with veins bled dry and sunken in the soil, limbs scattered at odd angles, decaying reminders of lives lost forever. Echoes of wheels crunching over bones, dragging the bodies to the furnace. Feel the heat on your face, carried by the wind. Smell the smoke, wafting through the air. The price we pay, all is fair in love and war. Tread softly on shattered boulders, like the lone wolf gazing mournfully over the scorched earth. Each death makes every breath just a little bit harder than it was before. Another loss in the battle of our era. Another peaceful woodland gone. Hello, my name is Catherine Redford 
and my poem is called Lost in the Woods. We find a ramshackle cabin held together by wild dog roses and celestial predetermination. We sit beside one another and examine the lifelines on our palms. You dip a brush into the sap weeping through the walls like a miracle. Lengthen your stunted line with a silvery trail until it meets your wrist. Hunch, knees under chin in primitive prayer, waiting for it to dry long into the night. Having no candles, we fade before each other and assimilate with the forest floor. The leaves whisper with the voice of God, yet the roots sing resistance through their network. One of their sisters is dying. They will shore her up and nourish her thirsty bones. But we are not trees. We'll hide for as long as we can, cupping the smudge of pencil on sweat in our hands, the crevices and imprints like brief woodbine in the cracks of tumbling walls. Hello, my name is Stuart Rawlinson and my poem is called Fallow. This empty field, save gorse-rooted dirt and clumps of unturned earth, seeds its own furrows between slit wisps of slight grass. Blunt blades bow and shake. Summer passes over, touching the inert ground from a safe distance. A season or two should do, but no one decides. No quota of seasons or nutrients to excess, says the ground is ready to plough, to sow, to water, to anticipate fresh shoots, verdant and dense. Hello, my name's Hilary Otto and my poem is Bonus Alternative Ending. On the 1st of September 2022, there was a failed attempt to assassinate Argentine Vice President Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, often known as CFK. With the snap of a popper, soft as a baby's romper, the click of a failed pistol sings a spoiler Spills a happy anticlimax we didn't hear coming and don't know how. And now the warm boom of blood squirts around the still present head, blooming, dying back, blooming, above a clamour as bodies react in the yawn of a second that surprise zipped open. You reach down to pick up the spent cartridge of a moment of luck lying empty at your feet while in the air hangs a hole in the shape of a bang. Tone Taking for Beginners by Eileen de Puer. It was Bocelli's biscuit tin I most looked forward to. She kept it stocked with malted milks, pink wafers, custard creams, the biscuit tin and her net curtains, which I was allowed to hide behind and that contained dried blue bottles hooked to the voile like applique jewels. 
Her exotic name was in homage to Pius Twelfth. my mother explained. My brother struggled with sibilance. So Pacelli focused our hour on snakes sleeping under bushes and shoe shops selling sandals with straps. My red brogues peeped beneath the curtains like popped out the tongues. They and the biscuits distracting my brother from sailboats at the seashore. When she moved towns, our sessions ended. We called to visit once brought Cadbury's roses, met the mother who had christened her, perched in the glow of a sacred heart print, took biscuits offered from another tin. Hello, I'm Sue Burge and this is my poem, Portrait of Garbo with Various Dishes. Portrait of Garbo with Various Dishes. Garbo pours coffee over her cornflakes, crams jars of lingonberry jam into her worn suitcase with sunglasses, bathing suit, blue espadrilles. She frolics with Hauser, nutritionist to the stars, who treats her to blackstrap molasses on broiled grapefruit, raw yeast, buttermilk, wheat germ and celery loaf. She is partial to dried apricots and John Gilbert, mesmerised by Mae West's little hands wielding the best cutlery at Cuckoo's dinner party. She cooks ham and eggs for Cecil Beaton, apron siren singing her song of sizzling fat, alternates waffles and jam with spinach binges. She considers wife an ugly word, wants to be a meatballs and spaghetti bachelor girl. Her apartment is pinker than you'd think. Alice B. Toklas declares she does not love Greta's recipes and plies her with cream. Perhaps Gertrude writes her a long-lost poem, which says, Enigma in a wet room with no footprints. Where are the hidden preserves of under-the-bed readiness? An egg is not a conundrum. Your chair is ready at the tight diner for an exclamation of rain and not a fish slice yet here. Thank you. Stars of the Sea by Leslie Kerwin Vitrine flash throws shade on stars embalmed in jars of not the sea. Colours drained all arms spread out in frozen rays, each astral form named in Linnaean copper plate. Necklace, pincushion, brittle, ochre, reef stars, blue stars, icons, giants, Indians, fat-armed, brittle, bats, crown of thorns. A floor-to-ceiling constellation winks in low museum light. And if I smash its glass to knives, discharge a suffocating spill on soft flesh of rucksack crowd, will we end up preserved on shelves, exhibits from a scene of crime?
Linda McKenna At the Frost Fair I print myself on ice bruised blue and purple with spilled ink. Dexterous with needles, I sew cold type into a false promise of family. The creak of the press masks the river's threatening whispers until the thaw, arriving sooner than predicted, swallows paper and powder, splits verse and song, harmless scandal, comic touches, sly love poems. Catching at the dull swirl of lead, I wonder, life or lie? Hello, my name is Cody Healy and today I'll be reading my poem titled Swimming Lessons. If you're reading this, I'm not sure how, but I've left you my Tesco club card. You see, I saw this man, back bent, gnarled like the root of a forgotten tree, jump into the sea. I watched as each step he took his back straightened, eyes wild as he hit the water. Remember with me, how the rolling slap of every wave became his voice, that voice in the back of my head, crashing forward relentlessly. Below me, the voice calls out, come into the water. I do not answer. Again, come into the water. I look behind me, wait, but still I see nothing to walk back to. Hello Damien and all stormers. Eileen Carnehume here. My poem is Infinity Repeats. This is how you count shadows and this is how the water gets in. Worlds collide here when sky and sea, thunderous in the night, forget to love. Rooms are beached, a runaway train rides the waves, and somewhere cars are leaving, driving through the storm. Cloud breaks in, brings dancers, umbrellas and fish, a piano that no one can play. One man in a boat, Strangely becalmed is searching for you. And in the underwater house, unwound time steals the future. As pinkeens gather beneath a ladder to the sky. The lighthouse keeper watches. This, this is how you count shadows. Thank you. Hello, my name is Maeve Keane, and this is my story, Incandescent Obsolescence. So, did the pandemic affect you much? Well, he said, taking a slug of his pint. I mend harmonicas for a living. He pulled the cream from his moustache with his lower lip and a sigh that could equally have been satisfaction or despair. Ah, busy enough the whole time so, I said idiotically. He looked at me, weighing me up, a half smile. Busy enough for me anyway, he admitted. 
most people come west for the sea. I had come for the sky, for that vast expanse of blue and black, stars and storms, reminding me of my insignificance. Neil lived in the old lighthouse. The light still worked, but he didn't work it. Ah, it's all automatic now. My father was the last real lighthouse keeper here. Still, I was eager to see it from the inside and whatever a harmonica repair shop looked like. I had rented a little cottage about as close to the edge of the world as I could get. From my front door, the view of the horizon was interrupted only once. Neil's lighthouse stood some way out, protruding into the skyline, black and white and red all over, like a bad joke. We met one evening at the pub. He showed me his home the next day. My own cottage was empty, lonely, but not lonely like the lighthouse. Neil had every nook stuffed full to the brim with clothes, books, mugs, newspapers, useful things, useless things. And yet there were gaps you couldn't ignore. A photo frame stood photoless. A woman's coat hung dusty on a rack. A set of bowls sat on the floor for a pet I couldn't see. What's your dog's name? I asked. Bobby, Neil replied without hesitation. Is he here? Neil shook his head. I said no more. He showed me the light, thick panels of glass looking out at eternity and a disused switchboard like a fuse box. They send someone out if there's any issue. I don't have much to do with it really. I only live here now. There was a picture on the wall by the switchboard. A man and a woman in sepia and a smiling boy standing proudly in front of the lighthouse. Is this you? I asked, nodding at the boy. It is, yeah, the three of us. His workshop was in the basement, at the tail of the spinal spiral stairs. There were lots of harmonicas. I don't know why this surprised me or what I was expecting. Like the rest of the building, it was packed full. A workbench was covered in fiddly screwdrivers and parts. There were a couple of old stools, a series of lamps, a stack of packaging and a stack of packages, a computer in one corner. They come here from all over, he said, gesturing to the queue of little mouth organs, each waiting their turn for attention, for a gentle hand and a careful eye. We went outside, smoking cigarettes at the edge of the world. He played his own harmonica for me then. Notes shining, stretching, longing. The sound of it almost touching something long gone or far into the future. Out of date and out of time. Exquisite, godforsaken. I had never heard the like of it. Later, from the cottage, alone I saw the light from the tower slice the darkened sky and I heard the cry of his harmonica again. Pained and divine, its aching song bending the stars, reaching into oblivion. Hello, Eat the Storms. Thank you for having me on. I'm Matt Gilbert, and here's a poem of mine, which I'm delighted to have included in issue two of The Storms. This is Flaming Bench. A miracle, 
took place down at the park the other week. An ordinary bench, peeling with green paint, chewed gum stuck underneath, was transmuted below unruly holly through the sparking jolt of an old-fashioned snog, full-force teen, as if after school, but starring seasoned adults, changing the nature of the hour, rekindling faith in touch, launching an urgent voyage back toward the body, burning off the dust of failure, recalibrated as release. An act of mercy, a tender elbow, taken to expired emotion. Thank you. Hello, my name is Martina Dalton and my poem is called Painting in Your Attic Loft. How safe I felt in its womb, beneath the joists ribs, moats drifting up between the boards like smoke, the air so thin and light, your mother's sewing machine whirring below us, stitching our identical skirts. Two hands mirroring each other's brush strokes, delicate as the dreams we painted for ourselves. Bony knees and bodies bent, watercolour paper stretched like kites above the world. Pulled canvas biggest sails around the frames we'd nailed to catch whatever wind we could afford made a kaleidoscope of colour in the water jar, held it up to the skylight square of midnight blue, watched the whirl of Turner's yellow specks make fireflies of the stars, let the colour settle in the glass, pressed our hands around its circled rim to trap the moon. How I longed to stay, forever float above that other world of mine, the concrete paths laid out. We are now well over the halfway mark for this special episode celebrating the new issue of The Storms, a journal of poetry, prose and visual arts supported by the Arts Council here in Ireland and also the Fingal Arts. Huge thank you to both of them for their participation. And the journal itself, along with its inaugural issue, is currently available at our website www.eatofthestorms.com and also thanks to many independent bookstores around this island. It is available at Books Upstairs and the Winding Stair Bookcase here in Dublin, Charlie Burns Bookshop in County Galway, Dingle Bookshop in County Kerry, Books at One in Lewisburg, County Mayo, and also The Secret Bookshelf in Carrickfergus, Northern Ireland. Now, next up today, we have Fiona O'Rourke, Rona Fitzgerald, Gifford Savage, Helen Laycock, Jane Ayres, Galia Admoni, Jesse Mixick, and myself. And this section is started off by Simon Rees. Making the bed. 
our beds stripped for the wash. We faced the chore of preparing the crisp lure of new linen. Stretch the fitted bottom sheet, negotiate the creases out. Pillows one, two, three, four. Duvet cover inside out, her hands puppet the extremities. She grabs two corners and shakes, voila. We nestle the other corners and snap it into shape. Now the ritual race to close the buttons. First to the middle, she cheats and I let her. Hello, my name is Fiona O'Rourke and my story is called Driving Lessons. Before you head to the Gale Tucked for the second time, your mother half jokingly, half not says, don't let any boys drag you behind a hedge. You redden and duck your head to read the ingredients on the cornflakes box like you're intensely interested in riboflavin. Stop thinking of me in that way, you want to say through gritted teeth. At the checkpoints, the soldiers eye the minibus driver. What are they thinking? What's a priest doing with a pile of school kids? Your teacher has organised Gale Tucked scholarships because no one can afford the college fees. The soldiers peer in the side windows like it's feeding time at a zoo. For a change, they don't say, All right, darling, you 16 yet? One week later, a tall lad from Ballymun monopolises the dashboard radio skims channels till they shriek like needles when ripped off vinyl. Inside profile, a brown fringe hides the colour of his eyes and tiny pink scars arrow his cheeks where acne used to be. He has the start of a rough beard. He's far too old for a 13-year-old, but he's good for scrounging a smoke off. The priest in the driver's seat casts a glance at the languid dub. If the glance had a sound, it would be a tut. Even the holy man's specks are glinting at the stenum-clad youth slouched in the passenger seat. The song Boogie Nights explodes into the minibus while the dub claps his hands at finding a station. He ups the volume and lowers his window, beats the rhythm with fingers on the bodywork. The song is pure funky, like one that will be banned. You remember your da rustling the newspaper when Top of the Pops made Yes Sir I Can Boogie a hit and were told off by teachers for singing it in school. Something about the word boogie drives adults demented. Something about boogie means it's not about dancing. From the radio a deep voice is insisting got to keep on dancing, keep on dancing while you and other girls sway and sing in agreement. Then the priest punches a button and Radio Nagel Tokta diddly die music fills the air. The disco is over. You take a fit of the giggles while the other girls, what is he like? It's only a bloody song. And catch the glint of the priest's stare via the rear view mirror, which he adjusts with his left hand, showing a perfect band of white skin that bracelets the tan on his arm. The rest of the journey is punctuated by disappointed glances in the mirror. This time last year, he would glance in the mirror and say, Hands up who wants to drive my car. It's to do with reaching the eye roll stage about speaking Irish. It's to do with no longer wearing knee-high socks. At your first scale talk the previous year, it was the end of primary school. Now it's the end of first year of secondary school, the end of being the youngest again. 
This year you don't stay in the Ballantees front room where custard creams are presented on doilies for his nighttime visits. You go up to the bedroom shared with three girls and smoke out the window while singing about heartbreak and substitutes. Changing substitute to prostitute, you girls cackle wildly. One dub girl remains downstairs and tells you you're very rude for not staying to talk to the priest who made the visit especially to see the Nordies. The priest was a bit of a hero in the northern town where you grew up. Legend had it that when he coached Hurling and Camogie in the council playing fields, a grim-jawed unionist came to the field to protest about Irish games being played on British soil. Said the unionist, if you didn't have that dog collar on, I'd go over there. The story goes that the priest removed his collar and beat the tar out of the unionist. Is the story true? It doesn't matter. It makes browbeaten people glow with secret victory. In your first year at the Gaeltacht, Talked, three of you Nordies stayed at the same house and the priest would drive you with three dub girls to a beach instead of joining the main Gaeltacht activity, a walk to a different strand. The thoughts of a lift in a car instead of hauling a bag of swimming togs, especially when they'd be damp and sandy, double the weight on the return walk, and the certainty of crisps and fizzy drinks without causing a dent in your own small pocket money made it a treat. You'd all pile into the car, two squashed into the passenger seat, four lined up in the back. The offer of the day trip was a given. There was no invitation, nor decision-making on your parts. It was an arrangement made between adults. Once parked behind sand dunes, you scramble from the car and run to the deserted beach. Change into swimming togs with awkward acrobatics beneath inadequate towels. The priest emerges from behind a sand dune and lollops about, bare feet pounding the sand, hairy back and chest on display, a trail of dark hair reaching the band of his swimming trunks. He commandeers you all into camogie teams, calls you fathead for missing a shot and your face blazes with shame. Maybe it's to work out who are his favourites, the best at camogie, but he saves the promise of driving his car until the last. He is not dressed yet and sits on the driver's seat with a belly overhang on the waistband of his black trunks. Who wants to go first? Not you. Instinct says this is wrong, in the same way that gyrating beneath a towel to make sure no one can see a stray body part is a necessity. Excitement at the opportunity to ricochet a massive car around a stretch of sand cannot cancel out your absolute belief that your swimming suit at backside should not go anywhere near his bulging swimming trunks. He lets each bikinied girl sit on his knee, then pushes them forward with his torso, closer to the steering column, to let them drive, his arms circling their tiny bodies, his hands on theirs, gripping the wheel. At one point there are two girls on his lap while he squeals like a 12-year-old boy. Watch out for that rock, you fatheads! In the second year of the Gaeltacht, you know that the only usual way for young underage people to drive cars is for it to be a stolen car. At home you have an innocent version of joyriding, like when you and your brother and the neighbour's boys rake about in Dad's clapped-out mini or the boys borrow their parents' Datsun and do some damage to the door with a misjudge reverse. You live on a country lane and can always lie about a herd of cows that dinted the car. 
None of the adults back home ever offer driving lessons by putting children on their knees. There is a photograph in your parents' house taken in the first summer of the Gaeltacht. You standing at a, he a gap in a hedge, arm around a donkey's neck. You could be in a tourist postcard, hair ragged after drying in the sun and wind. You have clothes on, a red tank top and a brown skirt, knee-length socks and Moses sandals. After being for a swim, after being rubbish at Camogie, after not driving the priest's car. The priest took that photo on one of his many trips with children to the sea. Thank you for listening to my story. Hello, my name is Rona Fitzgerald and my poem is called Alicante Hospital, December 2017. I can wriggle my toes and my fingers. My hand is bright red, a hulk's hand in transition. My knee bone white, open like a chainsaw. Can you move? I am a beached whale, a baby swaddled too tight by an anxious mother. A golden daffodil decapitated by careless children. I call the marigan to shape shift me to an eagle. Howl for the great god of the sea, Mananon Maclear, to fist the ocean. To carry me home on a tender wave. Hello, my name is Gifford Savage and my poem is called Rekindling. He would tread softly, trying not to wake us. But I would hear him boil the kettle to wash and shave, the sound of water splashing as he dipped and swished the razor in the basin. I would listen for him raking the ashes, bringing the backed-up embers back to life, the crunch of shovel on coal, heaping fresh fuel on the fire, before he set the guard in place. When I heard the door gently pulled closed as he left for the shipyard before dawn, I would settle down again to sleep. On waking, I rushed for the one room that he warmed for us every morning. His daily act of devotion taken for granted. Hello, my name is Helen Laycock. And my poem is called Fistfuls of Grieving. I swear I heard the whoosh of flames or a thrash of wings. On a quiet day they gave me a box of you, the weight of it. I hated your cold bone grey shingle beached beside a still, colourless tide, shovelled at sundown, tipped inside. But, equally devoted, I encircled our home with your fragments, shook out a grainy heart trace of remnants, sowed you like a dormant seed. But you didn't grow back or bleed. The soil sifted, and the wind lift floated you like snow lace. I kept a trickle, 
cord you inside the soft skin of a silken pouch, ribboned you tight to keep you whole. You fit in my palm now, so small, but still too heavy to hold to my face. Hello, my name's Jane Ayres and my poem is called Once Upon a Time. An empty bed, bare mattress stripped, and I remember lying there beside you after Dad's funeral, sharing warmth, sharing grief, sleep elusive. And I remember listening to bedtime stories, your voice safe, a gift possibilities of other worlds with happier endings. Thank you. Hello, my name is Galia Admoni and my poem is called Marmalade Isle 13. For me, it's the jams, one glimpse of an orange jar and I'm back in my grandma's kitchen, metal stairs by the back door where she kept her houseplants. Coral pink bathroom, shake and vac on the carpeted stairs, mint creams and casualty, checking her lottery numbers. Every Saturday night was an occasion. We'd play shops with her shoes. She made bolognese with lamb, toast with marmalade instead of jam, pickled beetroot, pinking scrambled eggs for Sunday breakfast. This is a different species of grief. Extraction Ritual by Jesse Mixick. You said this thing, and I said that thing, and now I feel my own absence in this place. I used to be a closed room, but now I am a guest, the walls not shy with the many voices of this rainy night, the windows too. Today the sunroom was flayed with light, the volley of noonblade shearing space, a severing suspension of dust motes, a promise, I think, withdrawn, the casting of a ritual to finally get me out, the razor sharp, the candle set to burn. My name is Damien B. Donnelly, and my story is called A Sister Recalls a Shell That Holds an Echo of What It Was Like to Laugh. I laughed when you said, come catch the coconut on the gorse, when spring was only starting and the clouds not yet released their light. Back when we were children in Spain for two weeks, growing up and out under white sun and orange sand, or was it white sand and orange sun? They smashed a coconut shell on the counter of a bar, and ever since I've never let go of that scent. I do not go to Spain anymore to look at what we lost. There are enough threats here. Even the daffodils newly opening, a pale consideration of magnolia as if to blend with an invisible sofa in a thoughtless rented studio trembles under the threat of their tulip neighbour, whose blood crimson towers shoot up from under. How quickly we come to label things, taste, treat, threat. Some things are warning signs, 
the tulips, the distance. The knife on the bar before it cracked the skull of the coconut, the liquid pouring, the drains overflowing. Even the colour of the water wondering where to run to. I watch it, stalling and rising into anger. A screech into scarlet, lipstick melting, liquid boiling, and I start counting. One day, one week, one month. A cycle is not just four weeks. We count back from where we were cut, opened up, pulled apart, broken baby from belly, brother, from wherever it was you were trying to get to. The trees you planted once, when father was still a word that could wrap us up in a hold of Marlborough scent, have returned. The hawthorn briar, now a branch of white blossom, a fragrance faint but familiar with orbiting orange spots like that white sun and orange sand. This morning, still on the shiver of all that is new in spring, a feathered form lay on the ground, fine and grey. Final feathers after the float, a feast on blades of giddy grass, trembling under the weight. The sunlight not yet fallen, the day still to rise, but there, where worms were coming up to the surface, was a being once bound to the sky. There are people running here, in bright colours around sandy banks, running past the cars, drawing dust behind them that settles in the eyes. I want to cry, but the air is too much like a desert to drown in. I wonder about choking and those pills you took. I can never ask you why or how you chose. Crossing just above the solid road and below the as yet unclear sky, now missing one grey tipped bird, are telephone wires that connect things. Fields, poles, sound, voice, people answering each other's messages. I write without needing a stamp. I know you will never reply. Red lorry passes. Red lorry, yellow lorry, red lorry, yellow lorry, red lorry, yellow lorry. I hear you in my ear. When I was trying to sleep in on Saturdays, late mornings away from school routes, and you with the lorries always in my ear, always moving, always wanting to get out, to run faster, faster than I could keep up with. I cannot catch you now. Michael sprayed the far field with silage last Sunday, while I turned that single room back into a study. Folding up tiny things never to be worn in boxes and placing them next to yours in the attic. There are enough things in there to drown in now, even with all its dust. In the afternoon I came out for air, forgetting, found the shit in its place. Another scent from when we were about seven, not the same as the one that slipped from the cut of a coconut, and yet, at base, they are both heavy and brown, but one unfolded its odour under white sand or orange sun, and the other only reminds me of the wet squelch of compacted things under feet that are dark 
and damp and rotting. Somewhere up the road, where only my ears can see from this distance, dogs bark behind big gates like cruel cages. Humans are beasts when pets are chained up so they can drive away, forget the sound of how a bark can break. You always hated being held. Even hugs were short-lived. You tried to release every animal someone had captured. Even that spider that frightened mother. Remember how she wanted us to move house the time we failed to find Terry the tarantula who later turned up dead in the attic of my doll's house? As if he knew already where we put the remains of things that had moved to heaven. I remember checking you afterwards. They had rubbed cool cream onto your cold wrists when they'd removed the restraints. But by then it was too late. The Sandersons have another white horse grazing now under the sycamore, eating everything that's grown green, or is it a green horse eating everything that's burning white? I was never good at telling what was what. You were the one who always seemed to know the truth, and there was I, running behind, unable to catch up. The roads in this village all seem to turn back in on themselves. There are hills you cannot see beyond, but when you reach the top, there is only a bottom afterwards. I do not know how you managed to get out. I'm still here. Still smelling the white coconut on the yellow gorse. A part of me still burning under an orange sun here on the green grass that tries to excuse the brown mulch beneath where grey things have seen their final days. I feel very far from the sounds we left behind in Spain and its shells, one of which holds an echo of our laughter. I imagine it is as bright as the moon in the darkness, the last sparks of our youth, that now only I can remember. Now, before I introduce the final guests on today's show, I would once again just like to say a huge thank you to all the contributors of this issue for their poetry, their prose and their visual arts. It has been an enormous honour, joy, privilege to read and view their work and to get to share it in the journal. They have made all of this such an exceptional second outing. What a storm. And so our final lineup today is Sheila Ryder, Katie Holloway, Dor Schiefer, J.P. Seabright, Teresa Donnelly, Rona Green, Z.R. Ghani, Maeve McKenna, Charles K. Carter, Lee Potts, Dara Fleming, Robert Freed Kenter, and Julie Runacres. And kicking off this final section is Barbara Dunn. Hello. 
My name is Barbara Dunn, and my poem is called Equinox. As soon as I sat there, I knew. If I died in that moment, two ducks flying in tandem out from the trees would have seen me slump from the rock onto the cobbled earth. That fish which pierced the surface would have caught my last breath. A darting dragonfly would have paused to sun itself briefly on my cooling cheek. Those strings of pearly lights on the thin skin of deep water would have become a vigil. And that heron, swooping with silver vestments for wings, will catch my soul flying. Hi, my name is Sheila Ryder, and this is my poem, A Green Piece of Sea Glass. I hope you enjoy it. A green piece of sea glass is a long time at sea, breaking the waves, tasting its salty hooves and vitality. It can never go back to sharp edges or the full glass bottle it left behind. Now curved and mellow, it is a frosted treasure, forever changing, but always part of home. Hello, my name's Katie Holloway and my story is called What's Wrong With A Kebab Anyway? Mum has always said she loves hosting, but that summer, for the first time, I doubted it. Things should have been different without Dad, but somehow they weren't. That year, her sub-breath mutterings about the party for a fortnight beforehand bumped into me, instead of washing over me. The, could you stop that and help? encroached whenever I dialed up to use MSN Messenger, so that I came to dread the party as much as she apparently did. It got worse on the day itself. It started with the natural, don't eat that, it's for the party, but unravelled when I changed out of the dress we'd picked. It was fine in the shop, but at home it clung, highlighting my evolving shape, alien to me. So I hid inside a hoodie, which led to a speech about wasting money before I changed back again. Mum gloried in the good weather, whilst I felt damp pouring my underarms. Family trickled, then gushed through the conservatory. A second cousin, or maybe uncle, stared, I felt, too long at the emerging planes of my body. An aunt exclaimed, too loud, that I was growing in every direction. Meanwhile, I waited for this year's disaster. There was always some minor happening that Mum overreacted to. One year she burnt her arm on a tray of volivons. Another, my cousin Laura, smashed a crystal salad bowl. Dad always seemed to be elsewhere when the catastrophe struck, and I couldn't help wondering if each reaction was some call to him to come, to engage. I wondered if it would work that year.
if somehow the echoes of her distress would reach him and he'd come. But then I told myself off for being childish. Laura arrived, wearing low-rise jeans showing off diamantes on one hip and a spaghetti top, bra straps showing. I hovered nearby to see if she would speak to me. She did. Are there any boys at school you like? she asked. I thought about how, if you look directly at the sun, it burns your eyes, leaving only white for a while. I skirted around the thought of James, and how if I thought directly about him, holding his face in my mind, it sort of blinded me to everything else for a moment, filling the insides of me with something I couldn't name. No, I said. Later, Laura snuck some bottles of beer round the back of the Wendy house and urged me to drink. I hated the taste and the wrongness equally. We hid, bored, as the evening grew chilly, listening. I can't believe it, Mum loud whispered. I can't believe she came this year, the brazenness. But the kebab! My ears perked up. I was hungry and didn't fancy the now dried out sandwiches. I've never seen something so rude. Imagine ordering a takeaway to someone else's party. Mum continued, louder now, but still apparently under the impression that she was whispering. "'She has no shame, that woman,' my Auntie Karen replied. "'I can't believe she came in the first place, after what happened.' Her voice became softer at the end, like it was on unsteady ground. "'A kebab,' my mum responded, and the tone of her voice made me wonder if somehow Dad might answer the echo and come back. I am Doris Eifer, and this is my poem, Return, Return Shulamit. I cannot put the jigsaw of your face back together. Growing up, I wanted porcelain plates like yours to taste little pots of yogurt in glass jars, sit with pillows at my back, clean expanses of mosaic tile trailing under succulents, shelves of assured books, Wild Gibran and Geffen drowning out faltering fingers on ivory keys. After lessons, my nine-year-old fingers dug under paleness to find relentless knots even elbows could not conquer. You were a graceful mountain on small heels, a soprano shuffling out disillusionment. My worm fingers unworthy of notice, but your lap always open even when I no longer fit. I was always tend to you. First flowers, artificial robin over blushing roses I had to sign for, messenger dispatched especially for me. Twice you granted me center stage, your spray of synthetic curls bobbing by gold balloons, warm words written on a stave, impractical gifts. Later, you grew jealous of male mentors I aimed to please. They followed in your footsteps, the idols of my teens, once yours. The draw of horsehair over exposed strings, too strong. The charms of cello and the invocation of ancient text. Symbolism lured me away. When I called again, your voice was a dusty eucalyptus branch 
fanning a dried out stream in summer. Hello, I'm JP Seabright, and this is my poem, Father, Father. Father, Father, take another step back, please. You're too close, not close enough. Never been close, except that one time you were so close. I was suffocating, held fast in your false embrace. You were so close. I was suffering, the indignity of your tumescence, the fragility of my pubescence. Never been close, except that one time, in a photograph, I can see us, kneeling on the ground, nearly touching, eyes down, hands searching, together fixing my bicycle, tethering childhood memories to something solid, something real, a second-hand bike with a wonky wheel. Hello, my name is Teresa Donnelly and my poem is called Opacity. If our time together was condensed into a year, you were there in the springtime, minding, folding, nurturing, holding. You spoon-fed me magic. We danced on fairy mounds, picnicked on the parlour floor when rain fell heavy outside. We counted raindrops before they ran together into tributaries of some mythical river. When summer arrived, your bright green eyes lost their luminosity. Instead of hearing you sing, I frequently heard you cry. The screech owl overshadowed the nightingale. When autumn came, your wounds were sutured over, but I felt the scars on your skin. Your petals fell, exposing a bare stem. I couldn't stay to witness your nakedness. One morning while you slept, I left. They say winter brought with it shadows, paler shades of you, the sound of your voice diminishing across snow. I mouth my longing for you to the moon. Hello, this is Rona Green and I'm delighted and honoured to be part of this beautiful issue of the Storms Journal and I shall be reading my prose piece Gilt-Edged Secrets. It is morning, broken by the glint of sun's first kiss. Tenderlings arise, leave the riverbed. 
Days muster in seeds of hope, blossoms of joy openly turn toward the light. Beauty blooms. Somewhere else, someone, something, whispers, Awelia, Awelia, Walia. Leaves rustle the breeze. Or was it evening? It's difficult to remember the beginnings and endings of things as they slip, one into the other, as day into dusk and night to dawn, bestowing blessings or curses, whichever. And no matter the time, sun always glints on a bloodied knife's edge intent on concealment, intent on flensing night from day, intent on shadow play. It was evening, as I recall, that time when everything is a mere shadow of itself. That time when I first hear the sound of the wheelia, 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 and become aware of something other. Shadows, yes, of course, I become aware of shadows at the same time. It was evening after all. That time when the black thud of a heart sings a different note, sounding blackbird's departure into mystery upon depositing its dark, glossy legacy of silence, after the last trill has echoed, dissolved, leaving only a trace shadow of its kindly gold-rimmed eye and leaving morning once again unbroken. The sun is dying, Upswooped starlings surge, blade-shaped shimmer glyphs spilling into empty skies, filling the creep of night's evening shade in glinting tones, gilt-edged secrets never to be told, glistering, iridescent, feathered scribes effortlessly turning this way, then turning this way, restlessly turning tricks of the light fading blue into copper, into gold, sky-haunting murmurations. Don't break, don't break, don't break the formation. Then they break. Empty promises rattle, scatter a shattering of wisdom's lustrous black pearls back from whence you came. Beyond the moon, somewhere black, the periphery, ice cold, tenderlings tumble and leap like leaves in a gust of wind. They are yet to realise they don't know what everyone knows. And so they tumble, unknowingly, dreaming their lives away. They tumble into the dark, hurtling pearls and curses, where shadows breathe black over arching blue, where daylight's fading pulses tethered to thinly veiled threats and the hollow promise of tomorrow snarls, hopeless. And in the hurtling dispersal, Tenderlings gather in sorrow, desolate. Little shipwrecks abandoned on the vast wave to infinity. Grief strikes, blow after breathtaking blow. And yet, something shines as something dims, and hope echoes inside the song of grace that tomorrow sings at the breaking point of its rude awakening. And, in the enigmatic clearing, Something grows, and tenderlings are caught in the glimpse, far from the tethers and lamentations, dressed once again in the sheer innocence and simplicity of existence, a delicacy of being. Sails to the wind, they drift back down to the river, 
where they'll rest between this time and another in the circle of light. They will break again. They will blossom again. They will grow, now they know what everyone knows. And whichever way the wind blows, leap, tenderlings, leap. Hello, my name is Zed Argani and this is my poem, Too Unforgivable. Is it possible to leave the world without having tarnished it a little? I do the time warp again in my cotton knickers. I do things to you my mother would disown me for. A red scarf finds a new role as a gag and the curtains are praying for a storm to rip them apart from fornication. What if there's no fire? Then we won't burn. We are too unforgivable in the morning, elbowing each other for comfort. I scroll through the news and pause at, someone is sleeping in a glass box at a museum right now. The heavy thud when the cat lands on a chair is like the bore of married life sinking in. Hello, my name is Maeve McKenna. High noon. Day again, air thick as sour milk. Heroic by 9am, you lick a Rizla, spit tobacco from the tip of your tongue. My nail scissors gouges a fresh hole on your leather belt, jeans sliding past the brim of your off-white underwear. Whiskey chaser in a teacup. Dusk in the sitting room, yellow as phlegm. You remain present until my humming punches the walls, then retreat to some other room of us. Nights black as our dead cat. Remember days when we laughed that way, the way it meant we weren't laughing. Tears at the crease of each nostril. Dreams red hot as a mouth ulcer. You rarely use my name now, only at 4am when I hold the pillow over your face and hear muffled sobs. A confession? Sleep battered as the skin on my left wrist. More days. This is what happened. I packed a plastic sack full of your clothes, flung it from the top of the stairs, waited for you to follow knowing it wasn't quite high enough. Hi, my name is Charles K. Carter, and today I'm going to be reading my poem entitled Mourning the Dead Cat. The cat died, and my dog does not know how to cope. She walks around distraught, and any time she finds a piece of cat hair, she sniffs it, she inhales too deeply, and she lets out a great sneeze. And though I always try to stop her, she chooses to eat the dead cat's hair, as if to say, 
Hey, sister, you will live in me now. I will carry you. Hello, my name is Lee Potts, and my poem is called Listen. Listen, we were living too far from town to hear the church bells announce a new hour, a wedding, a fire. The wood frame nailed together and unseen within the walls creaked prophecies in a tongue guttural and cruel every windy night. Remaining mute, the foundation settled beneath us both, and I never thought to ask. Young ravens perched in the scrub pine down the hill called out our end each morning. That is, we were living the way a dried branch held loosely over hidden water, shudders, and yearns. Hello, my name is Dara Fleming, and I'll be reading my poem entitled, I Wish. I wish. I wish I could tell you that I won a fiver on a scratch card last Tuesday and about how long it took me to get out of Dublin on Friday night. I wish I could complain to you about how expensive hotels are these days or tell you about how hungover I am and how I am never drinking again. I wish I could send you videos you'd find funny and tell you about the girl who shifted me last Saturday and about the girl I didn't have the balls to talk to in the end. I wish I could waste entire Sundays talking shite and pretend to understand what you do for a living. I wish I could meet you for a coffee on a Thursday afternoon just because. I wish I could send you drafts of the stories I write and celebrate your wins with you and buy bottles of whiskey that you'll never drink when it's your birthday. I wish I could reminisce about the good old days when all we worried about was chasing women and whether basketball training would be overly difficult and whether we'd have enough money for chips. I wish I could meet your family and be there at your wedding. I wish I could have been the world's best uncle to children who have your laugh. I wish a thousand things. I wish things could have been different. I wish you could have told me of the pain. But above all else, I just wish you could be here. Thank you. This is Robert Fried Kencher, and I'm recording this from Toronto, Canada. This poem is for my late best friend, confidant, artist, and collaborator, Kathy Daly. She died in March 22. The poem is called Saying Goodbye 22 in the after. We write ourselves into memory. We write, write ourselves into existence. Water in the canal, shape beyond the window pane. Our heart anxious self in mirror. Water, memory, 
you are gone, having left, going through your papers, affairs, prints, drawings. How can everything be so still? How can everything be still? In movement, in the endless movement and repeats of brush strokes, of notebooks, of notes, of remember to do this, remember to do that. Simon says, do this, do that. The world is full of strong men. The world has become an international wrestling competition. War, a few hours away, by airplane. Berlin, no, Kiev. Yes, it started as you were dying, leaving us leaving words, language, textures, drawn gestures, new visions behind you, a hairpin turn. Speaking of the light, your hair falling out, radioactive snow. The radio waves of ice flows and dogs barking with pitchforks, staves, walking stiff, walking sticks, oxygen tanks, bluster of winter. The sound bites of lyrical song. Goodbye, good night, good morning. Speaking to one another in last conversations, heads on shoulder. Turning you in a soiled bed, cleaning you up. What is dignity? How fortunate to have known and are you warm enough? Are you cool enough? Bang, 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 knocking on the door, hail in the skylight, trees scratching the sides of abandoned houses, the new rapid transit beyond the planning stages, house prices dropping, the market falling out of commodities and Tylenol. Pain meds, little white capsules like rat poison, canticles, strychnine. We write ourselves into dreams. We have no other way forward. Bone white wooden sticks left on the steps make a toy cabin for the table. Thank you. Hello, my name is Julie Brunnikers and my story is called Not Going Back. When she turned 60 and realised she probably never would visit India again, she started to miss it a great deal. She recalled particular scenes and incidents with a fierce nostalgia, which she fed willingly by taking out old photo albums and poring over prints. The ones of Rajasthan were a particular draw, though she knew she'd loved Cochin perhaps more than anywhere, and banana porridge still made her think of that beach in Kerala. They'd stayed in a half-built hotel and eaten longestine cooked on an open fire on the terrace. There was the photo of a guy pegging his phone line to the telegraph wires to make a call. She wondered if she remembered these things because of the photos or if she would have anyway. A Guardian article on Jodhpur recalled her to a walk up to the fort, looking down at the blue houses, lapis bright in the harsh desert light. 
She'd been told they were the Brahmins' houses, but now it seemed that may not have been right. She didn't like that she'd had faulty information all that time, though she really hadn't thought of it in years. Neither had she given a thought to the hotel, puffed at the end of the place as the best in the world. The Guardian wasn't recommending it as such. They were parroting something from Condé Nast. Surely it wasn't that spooky place they'd looked in, the one with the underground pool. They'd had a habit of ticking off Maharaja's palaces turned hotels, though they hadn't had the money to stay in more than one, and that was only because her brother-in-law knew the Maharaja's son through work. She'd been glad they weren't staying in this one. The thought of that subterranean lagoon, its red sandstone pillars, rising sombrely from the still, empty waters. It made her shiver, even now. The Umayyad Bawan Palace. Yes, it was the same. Much bigger in Google images than she remembered. The pool was there, too. Lilies floated on the water, and there appeared to be floodlights at the base of the pillars. It was still empty. They used to talk about working out there in the semi-serious way that often grew out of their holiday enthusiasms. They visited some of the grand Indian boarding schools, the Dune and Mayo, to look round and imagine what it would be like to build a life there. They never spoke to anyone. She had pictured herself walking into Ajmer, the rare young white woman, and buying fruit at the market. What else she would have done all day she couldn't imagine. Now the thought of such an inconsequential life was bothering. She read appalling stories in the news and wondered how she'd ever stepped into a Delhi rickshaw or even so much as thought of walking out alone. Some places might have changed so much it was almost a relief not to see them again. The steam train winding towards Jaisalmer at dawn, how they'd stepped down from the running boards when the train ground to a temporary halt, as it often did, and caught their first glimpse of the fortified walls shimmering, like something half-remembered from a dream. How pleased they had been to stay in the old town, rather than in one of the squat, slab-sided concrete blocks that had even then begun to spawn in the whirling dust beyond. The Geisel Castle, that was its name. She recalled whitewashed rooms speckled with mirror-work, the heavy, too small drapes that served for doors, the surprise of a fissure in a wall giving on to a courtyard where a scrawny dog limped into the shade. Google showed it still existed, a little sanitised, perhaps hard to tell. Again, it seemed more spacious than in her memory. The Chaisalmere ones were the second album. There was the panorama from the train, and here the one from their camel ride. She was wearing an absurd quantity of knotted scarves and had her stoic smile on, readying herself for the lurch as the animal unknotted its front legs and bolted her upwards. But none of where they'd stayed. She went through the pages again more slowly this time, not wanting to believe it might not be there. Could it be lost? Slipped carelessly in the wrong place? Unimaginable to think they had not taken one at all. And yet, was it so unlikely, really? It occurred to her all the insignificant things they had left unrecorded, at least partly through choice. The problem with photos, they agreed, was that they dictated the memory. Looking forward to looking back, they would displace what might otherwise be remembered. Better to keep the memory limber than rely too heavily 
on such bulwarks against loss. Now, as she turned page after page of the India albums, it was as if the years were being relived in halting stop motion, like images yanked through a slide projector, a silent movie with no captions. And what captions could she give them, these, these residues? She cast around for some kind of consolation, but her own words weren't up to it. Kneeling on the carpet, she waited while the Jaisimai prints resolved themselves into a blur of colour, a mantra. None of these will bring disaster. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. That seemed right. The dishonesty of it was exactly right. She certainly wasn't going to better Elizabeth Bishop. She thought it was the art of losing, but when she looked it up, it turned out to be called one art. She'd think about that some other time. It even mentioned losing a continent. Subcontinent, she thought, at once pleased and pettish. Indian subcontinent. The losing it had been so gradual, she hadn't recognised its completeness until now. Putting the albums back in the cupboard, she had to shove really hard to make room, so they wouldn't budge, not even if she wanted them to. Readers and writers, painters and seekers, in trousers or tiaras, non-conformers and non-believers, gender X and gender equals, we've reached the end of another episode of Eat to the Storms, the poetry podcast. And this very special episode, celebrating the launch of The Storms, issue two. My name is Damon B. Donnelly. I have been your host and producer of this episode. And thanks so much to all the shining stars of issue two of the storms. Today, we had 54 of our 81 contributors. So please do grab yourself a copy of the journal and see and read all the other contributions. For details on all of my guests today, you can head on over to www.eatthestorms.com and click on the Storms Contributors for a list of bios, photos and social media handles. Now, thank you so much to you, the listeners, for tuning in, whether that has been on Spotify, Apple, Anchor, Google, Breaker, Podbean, Player FM, Overcast, Pocketcast, Castbox, Podcast, Alex, or iTunes. Thank you to the Arts Council Ireland and the Fingal Arts. And also thank you to the independent bookstores around this island of Ireland where the journal is available. And so on we go. Out again into the big wide expanse of the unknown going forward until we can't anymore. If you've already seen Inside Issue 2, it begins and ends the same way. With collages by Geoffrey Yamaguchi standing on a highway on a closed road. Maybe space is the new route. We are ravenous. We won't give up regardless of the closures, the pandemics, the losses. We move on. We look up. And then we fly. And while all that's happening, make sure that you stay
Oh, thank you.